This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. Welcome to the Hope Book Club with Katrina Rowe and Natasha Moore because life's just better with a book. So today we're starting off with non-fiction by John Ronson called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. It's looking at this, I guess, new phenomenon of social media public shaming of people who put a foot out of line and I guess how it affects their lives. Hi, Natasha. Hi, Katrina. I have been quite fascinated by this topic, I must say, and I think how hard it is these days that when you make a mistake, it can be instantly beamed around the world. Is John arguing for a little bit more empathy, I guess, for these people who make mistakes? Well, this is one of the really interesting things about this book is that he starts writing it. He starts being really interested in this topic because he's one of the shamers. So he's really excited about this kind of renaissance of public shaming where the powerless, just the people who have a Twitter account, can bring down the powerful, can, you know, shame columnists who they think are racist or, you know, big corporations who aren't treating their customers well. They can all get together online and make things happen. And so he's like it's kind of the democratization of justice. But then he kind of participates in a few of these public shamings and starts to see some of the results and he starts to get a bit queasy about it because, you know, the outrage machine, the kind of choreography of public shamings where someone does something, someone says something, and then everybody piles on and a lot of things can happen as a result. People lose their jobs. Um, people get like PTSD from the kinds of things that they go through from these public shamings online. Mm. Um, and he goes, well, actually, this has been turned on lots of kind of individuals, people who just made a bad choice that they maybe shouldn't have made but also didn't deserve to have their lives kind of torn apart because of it. And so he kind of comes at it from this perspective of, oh, well, maybe I'm part of the problem. Mm. Maybe public shaming is not a good thing. Well, I mean, just in the last few weeks I can think of things that just went haywire. So there was the Australian cricket team's ball tampering incident. There was an incident, you know, with Thomas Markle setting up paparazzi shots that just went nuts. Even um, on The Voice when Sonia... Kruger was a bit, um, you know, there was a little innuendo and there was a bit of a double standard there in that a woman can behave that way towards a man but a man not to a woman and people pointed that out. Um, and they're, you know, making a perfectly reasonable point. But the way that the internet goes crazy about it, it's blown up out of all proportion. Well, and it's so, there's so much glee and delight in the public shaming. So I think, I mean, I, I wrote about this at Easter time in an article because I was really intrigued by what happened with the cricket, with the ball tampering, because I felt like even though that was a public shaming, I thought it had a really different vibe to earlier things, to things like the Barnaby Joyce affair, that people loved the fact that Barnaby Joyce had been caught in this affair and, you know, people wanted to read about it. And I think people want their politicians to kind of fail. We kind of enjoy these scandals in some way. Whereas with the cricket team, everyone seemed really genuinely devastated and wished it hadn't happened and really were hoping for some kind of redemption story. Like there was still a sense of I can't separate myself from them and be like, you are bad people and I am a good person and I am judging you. Well, because they're our team. They represent us. that's right. And so, you know, and we want them, we want our team to be great. We don't want them to be embarrassingly cheating. But that's so interesting, isn't it, that like normally with these public shamings, we very much separate ourselves into an us and them mentality 
And there's so much self-righteousness to that, that like I would never say or do something like that and we must all judge them. So there's not kind of this desire for restoration or rehabilitation or like, you know, slap on the wrist, but maybe there's a point of forgiveness at some point. There's a sense of like, no, we're all pile on and we really enjoy it. And, and if that's I can a disturbing say thing. About the cricket is that if you're an Australian, you were like, oh, their shame is my shame. This is really yeah. embarrassing. If you were from the UK, you would go, ha, they've been cheating all along. Yeah, a little bit more glee from then. <laughs> exactly. You know, so it really depends whether you're, I guess, associated with that shame. Um, but I felt particularly for Thomas Markle because I thought he didn't choose this, you know. He didn't choose to be mm. in the spotlight in the first place. It's been thrust upon him. Well, and that's the case for a lot of the people that Ronson Ashamed. looks at in his yeah. book because they're people who, you know, he tells the story of Justine Sacco, for example, who was um, a PR um, employee at a company. She was on holidays. She tweeted a kind of joke, like sort of in poor taste, but obviously didn't mean it the way it sounded. She a was going to joke. Africa. She said something like, you know, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. So it was kind of a, you know, it was in poor taste. But obviously she was making a comment, I would think, um, that it was obvious that she was making a comment on sort of white privilege and this sense of like, oh, we live in a bubble and we don't get things like AIDS, rather than, you know, she doesn't actually think that white people can't get AIDS. Mm. Um, so she tw- sent this tweet off to, she had like 170 Twitter followers, mm. and then she got on a plane from London to Cape Town. And in the 11 hours that she's on this plane and has her phone off, someone kind of found the tweet, retweeted it to a whole lot more people, and she became the number one worldwide trend Hmm. on Twitter. And people were calling for her resignation. Um, People were calling for someone in Cape Town to go out to the airport and get, like, a photo of her getting off the plane. So the whole of the Twitter sphere, Hmm. so-called, is, like, gunning for her like life to be destroyed and she's asleep she has to pay for her mistake yeah and so she does she loses her job when she's oh. in south africa no one can guarantee her safety hotels won't have her she has to go home um and so it does kind of and then of course uh every time you google her all of this comes up yeah so it was really hard for her to get another job and it's hard for her to date and all those kinds of things that you kind of go look she said something that wasn't great and yeah, she made a mistake. <laughs> is that is that really what we want to use our power for as, mm. you know, people on social media is to destroy someone for something like that? So there's a there's a an analogy that John Ronson John Ronson draws in the book where he talks about how no individual snowflake intends the avalanche. So people kind of pile on And they're just tweeting kind of their own thoughts or posting their own thoughts. But nobody intends what the overall outcome is Mm. um, for the person on the other end of it. But everyone's part of it. Yeah. Yeah, So so everyone's kind of responsible. What can we take out of this um, in terms of our own behaviour on social media? It's a really good question. And I don't know. (laughs) Okay. So so it doesn't go there? Well, I mean, because he's trying to be quite even-handed about it in a way. So he actually looks at some examples as well where shame has been useful. Um, So he talks to a judge um, in Texas who used to um, hand out these sentences, these punishments. So, for example, someone who, you know, had killed someone drink driving – 
he gave this sentence of like, you know, he had to hold a board outside a pub for, you know, a certain number of nights saying, I killed someone drink driving. Like this, these kind of really public punishments that people had to go through. And some of them, the people were like, this actually changed me in a good way, having to go and admit what I'd done in a really public way. The positive aspect of it is that when there is an assumption, you know, like, for example, with the sexism or racism, then it is great that we can, you know, call out these assumptions. But I think what's bad is that the person sort of gets blacklisted. Rather than being educated, they get shamed and their life can be real. Well, and it's not as though it's, we're not talking about conversation. Like a public shaming is not a conversation where someone might change their minds. They're just being bullied into stopping what What they're doing or stopping what they're saying. That's not the same thing as changing someone's mind. Mm. So I think, you know, for our own behaviour online, I think it's a really good practice to think about taking the log out of our own eye. I was going to say. Instead of the speck in someone else's eye. Some you know, throwing advice. the first stone is <laughs> another to, analogy. To that- try to see that, you know, actually I'm not perfect and who am I to judge this other person um, and to really be on the lookout for self-righteousness in my own kind of attitude when I'm judging other people for what they've said or done mm. online. Absolutely. Okay, we've been talking to Natasha Moore from the Centre for Public Christianity about So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Ronson. And our next book is a work of fiction. It's called Like a Fading Shadow by Antonia Manos Molina. Now tell us what this is about. It's harder to say than you might think. So basically it's about James L. Ray, who is the guy who assassinated Martin Luther King um, 50 years ago this year. Um, and it's told from his perspective, the author really tries to get inside his mind. So he went on the run for two months after the assassination. There were like 3,000 FBI agents looking for him. Um, and he uh, went off to Canada and then to London. And at some point he spent 10 days in Lisbon in Portugal. Okay. Isn't and that the Eurovision place? Uh, is it where Eurovision was this year? I think year? we just yeah, had sure. Eurovision okay, in Lisbon. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> I missed Eurovision completely. So he's in Lisbon for 10 days. And yeah. is that what the book is focused around? So the book is built around these 10 days that he spends in Lisbon as this kind of anonymous fugitive. Um, and But interwoven with that is the author's own, it's kind of a memoir, as well as a novel. Um, So the author talks also about his own first trip to Lisbon um, back in the 80s where he was writing his first novel. His wife had just had um, their second baby um, and he kind of absconded for a few days to Lisbon, um, you know, bailed on his wife for a bit because he decided that his novel needed to be set in Lisbon and he hadn't been there. And so he went off to kind of spend a few days as this anonymous fugitive, in a way, from his family responsibilities. Um, And it was a stranger in this strange place. And so you have his kind of descriptions of that alongside his imaginings of what it was like to be James L. Ray in the same city 20 years earlier. It's just kind of astonishing the parallels between them, even though obviously he's not a white supremacist and an assassin and Mm. a criminal, but 
in trying to get inside somebody's head and he's using, you know, these declassified documents that the FBI have recently released about James L. Ray. So there's all this stuff that we know about him and know about what he got up to in Lisbon and these other places. And so the writer builds something really interesting out of this life that, I mean, he doesn't really know what was going through his head. It's an act of imagination. Mm-hmm. What did you like about it? It was a slow burn for me. We were reading it in my book club um, and we came across it because it was on the Man Booker International Prize list. So it's translated from the Spanish. Um, and That sounds very highbrow now, Natasha. Doesn't it's written it? in another yes. language. <laughs> well, I've been reading it in English. Right. Um, <laughs> not speaking any Spanish. Um, I didn't know anything about James L. Ray. I didn't know very much about Martin Luther King's assassination. But it was just so vividly imagined and, you know, what it was like to be someone who kind of lived in books and in other people's heads. So, you know, one of the things we know about James L. Ray, apart from the fact that he escaped from prison the year before the assassination, he was supposed to be in prison the whole time. He has this quite, you know, remarkable story. Um, He read all these spy novels and stuff and clearly sort of imagined himself as someone glamorous and someone someone in a movie, you know, and the author kind of identifies with that. So I think it's quite interesting from this perspective of like, is this, you know, this person we want to write off as a monster? Like what's actually going on in his head and how different is that from what's going on in my head? Or so head? it sounds like he's he's a bit delusional but then it's kind of maybe saying maybe we all are. Maybe. Maybe we all have a little bit of self-deception going on. Yeah, and we all, you know, have the capacity for things, you know, not necessarily for assassination, but for kind of contempt for other people or um, for wishing that our lives were different from what they are. Um, You know, it's quite – and he's not drawing kind of obvious lessons. He doesn't kind of spell any of this out. Um, But it is kind of, I think, quite an interesting meditation on can I really separate other people from myself and be like I'm not – like them. So do we find out what actually happened to the guy in real life in, in this book? We do. We okay. do. So we know because um, <laughs> I was tempted throughout the book because it's based on a true story and a real person. I was like, should I Google him? No. Do I want to know? No. Do I want to spoil it? But you also like it goes back and forward in time throughout. So and there is there's a wonderful chapter at the end actually which is told after all this time that we've spent in James L. Ray's head and in the writer's head, there's a chapter that's told from the perspective of Martin Luther King on the day that he was killed mm-hmm. and the day before that. Um, and it's quite a stunning chapter, I think. I feel like the whole book would have been worth it for that one chapter. Um, can I read you a little bit from it? Sure. Okay, so this was, I mean, obviously it's imagined as well. Like, I don't know if Martin Luther King thought any of these things, but there's a sense of, you know, real exhaustion and feeling hounded um, in a way that itself sort of parallels how James James L. Ray feels, which is quite a disturbing thought as well, right? Um, So this part is about how how exhausted he is and how he's feeling. It says, he had never wished nor asked to be put on a pedestal, but they did it anyway. They elevated him to this earthly sainthood, and then disowned him for not living up to their impossible expectations. They had turned him into a heroic statue only to throw stones at it. Shame was one of his most assiduous secret afflictions, throbbing deeper than the weight of his obligations, fed by the tension of public life, the gap between what others chose to see in him and who he really was. 
There is no public figure who is not an imposter. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that too. All right, thank you so much, Natasha. You're welcome. That's Like a Fading Shadow by Antonia Monoz Molina. Now, I want to share a book with you, Natasha. Please. This is one that I've already talked about this on air a little bit because I was so enamoured of it. I really enjoyed it, In which is a weird thing to say about a book like this. But it's called The Tattooist of Auschwitz. It's Another World War II one, Katrina. I know. <laughs> we can't get away from them. <laughs> different. I haven't, I haven't read a book like this before, really, I don't think. I've read books set in concentration camps like The Hiding Place and then we all know, of course, Schindler's List. Um, This one by Heather Morris, though, I felt a real connection with because the subject of the book is on an Australian man and his name is Lale Sokolov and um, he's now in his 90s, so he is a Holocaust survivor. Um, But what made this book special for me was that it's a love story (laughs) between Lale and the woman who does go on to become his wife, Gita. And it tells the story of how they meet in the concentration camps and how they survived the concentration camps. And look, I'm not going to pretend like the full horror is there in this book. I mean, the the horrific things that went on there that are still just as shocking, even though we sort of know about them. But I guess the difference is that you're hearing this story from Lale, a person that you get to know in the book, and they're real people that he knows. They don't. They're not just numbered sort of faceless Jews that you can read about statistics, you know. They're characters that we've gotten to know and the things that are done to them are absolutely horrific. And you might think, well, why would I want to read that book? I why guess, would I want to read that book? <laughs> well, I guess the thing is that Lale is a Australian man living here now. So this is a real person. It's a real person, yep. And... He survives and the love story between him and Gita is, I I think it just makes it bearable. It makes the suffering bearable knowing that there's joy. Their their mission is to survive and to be together and you know that they are going to achieve that because they go on to live this long productive life together. Um, So you're not giving us a spoiler here. We know this from the start of the book. You know from the start of the book that it is his life story and of how he met his wife and how they survived together and what they had to do to survive, which is also the things he had to endure that were quite horrific. But why would you read it? The thing is you read this book, you're not going to complain about your life. You're not going to get up (laughs) the next day and think, oh, I've got to go to work again. You know, or, oh, gee, it's cold, or, gee, I wish the sun would shine, or, or um, you know, I haven't got much money in my bank account this week. How am I going to pay the rent? I mean, whatever little things might worry you in your life, when you read this book, they're all put into perspective. Because if you have the freedom to get out of bed and choose what you want to eat for breakfast and go to work and come home and relax and enjoy yourself, then you will suddenly see the richness of an ordinary life. So is that how life is for them then after the war, having survived this? Do they kind of offer you this as a lesson? So for the rest of their lives they would never have complained about the weather? No, there's no moral lesson in it. It's it's really very much a survival story. And I guess it's what it's really about is uh, Lali having to confront. So as the tattooist of Auschwitz, his job was to tattoo 
Oh, the people the who the numbers onto oh, the wow. people who came into the camp. But he was a prisoner himself. He was a prisoner yeah. himself, and he was inflicting pain. And he could have chosen not to do that job, but life wouldn't have been good for him. And he does get certain privileges because he has this important job, like he gets extra food which he can share with others. And Lale um, supplies goods to many of the people. Like he can get hold of medicine and things like that because he has contacts. He takes a lot of risks, and he the things that he endures. I don't want to go too much into the suffering that um, he does go through. It's quite horrific, some of the things that he has to do. Um, but I, I think that you just see that, in a way, surviving is enough. And it's not like he goes on then to think he has to live the most amazing life. For him, his goal is simply to be with his love. Hmm. And that's it, for them to to be together. And as he promises her, to make love whenever they feel like it. Wow. And, and do so, they? Do we hear a lot about their lives after? No. The war? All we hear about is how they find each other again. Oh. And there is a little bit to tell you a little bit about what happened to them. So you're not dissatisfied going, what happened to them? <laughs> there is a, an epilogue, and there's also a, a part written by his, his son as well, which is wonderful to read. Um, but I think for me, it was just very validating to hear this man tell his story without shame, because I think they lived with a lot of shame, you know, mm. uh, that, that uh, they were worried that they would be seen as collaborators um, with the Nazis because he did work for them. Um, but he, in fact, wouldn't share his story until after his wife had died, because his wife oh, didn't wow. want to share their story because of that shame, that sense that people might... And he shared it with this writer. Mm, over six years, I think, wow. they shared it. And, yeah, now it's published. It's a wonderful read. And they were at Sydney Writers' Festival earlier in the year. Um, and I highly recommend it. I think it's a great read. I, again, listened to this one on audiobook. And, uh, it's a habit for you. And uh, <laughs> it's a way to squeeze in a few more books, yep. Natasha, that I can read. I do a lot of driving. Yeah, and I would highly recommend it. Yeah. Great. The Tattoos of Auschwitz by Heather Morris. All right, it's been great talking books, Natasha. Thank you. Yep, you've been listening to the Hope Book Club because life's just better with a book. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.